The Glop Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk text and high-speed data at competitive prices and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to the conservative organization of your choice. To get started, call 1-800-A-PATRIOT or patriotmobile.com slash ricochet. You get the same quality service, the latest and greatest devices, Apple 6, Galaxy 7, competitive prices, and center-right causes that you believe in. Finally, a mobile phone company that believes what you believe, Patriot Mobile, America's only conservative phone company, was created to fight for conservative causes and defend conservative candidates. Stand with Patriot Mobile and give your voice to conservative values with every call, text, and status update. Call 1-800-A-PATRIOT right now or go to patriotmobile.com slash ricochet to sign up. Patriot Mobile, the conservative choice for mobile phone service. Join the conversation. Hear me. I am your new president. From this day on, the official language of San Marcos will be Swedish. Silence! In addition to that, all citizens will be required to change their underwear every half hour. Underwear will be worn on the outside so we can check. What's the Spanish word for straightjacket? Power has driven him mad. Law Podcast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash glop and using glop as your coupon code. And by Wink, W-I-N-C, if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink, the new way to get all the best wines perfectly batched to your palate. And by The Great Courses. The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners an opportunity to get a full month of unlimited access to all the lectures for free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. I am John Podhortz, editor of Commentary here, high atop the garden. Hey, John, I hate to interrupt you. Could you just do that one more time? I think we can have a little more fun with it. I want you to, like, imagine, when you do the wing spot especially, you're drinking wine. Look, you should send the message that you're a wine enthusiast. It's, okay? eight, it's 8.34 in the morning, Rob Long. Rob yeah, Long, yeah, right. some, well, some of I mean, you some Hollywood of people, <laughs> some of you Hollywood people who are working out in hangars in, on Long Island these days, but some of you Hollywood people may drink wine at 8.30 in the morning, but not this guy. Not wait, this if, wait, if, you, if you don't start drinking in the morning, you can't later claim to have been drinking all day. That's a very and, good point. You know, that's that is Jody Goldberg in Washington, D.C. So here we are, the three guys of Glop, back together again after our last podcast. We did not have Rob Long on our last podcast, which was done in the middle of the ocean. That's right. You guys, like you guys. And uh, our rhythm was you went solo. Yeah, you know, you realize how valuable I am. It's no joke. Like our rhythm was off. We had we had Kevin Williamson and Charlie Cook as our as our wingmen, and oh, uh, I heard it. I heard it. Uh, it was uh, it was it was problematic. I think. Or you do you do the high voice? You like uh, the high voice? You go, no, I think you guys are really good. No, come on. <laughs> you guys, it was great. You know, whenever the, the voice goes up, up six octaves, you know, there's a lie is being told. You guys really, you know, you really, you should probably do a separate podcast. Just the three of five of you. That was really great. <laughs> I have to say, I want to defend 
one of our uh, erstwhile uh, people from the last show, Charlie Cook, who Ricochet listeners seemed to think was being uncommonly rude, particularly to me. And you have to understand the setting. It was like 10.30 at night. We're in this ballroom in the middle of the ocean. We haven't worked together before. Charlie is a very funny guy, and we were just trying to get a comic rhythm going. And lay off, right. lay off the Brit. Because right. Not only should you lay off him because he's a good guy, he's a good writer, he's a funny guy, but he has he's very armed people. Yeah, and he wasn't being uncommon. Wasn't being uncommonly rude to you. I mean, he was no, being I, rude to you in the was, common way that almost everybody is rude to you. Uh, that's right. I, I live in Manhattan, and I'm used to it. And and I'm used to it. Abrasiveness. Certain amount of abrasiveness. There's some abrasiveness. That's right. You know, we New Yorkers, John. Anyway, that's right. Well, Jonah, can I ask you a question? I've got a weirdly personal question, which you can you can punt if you if you don't if you don't want to uh, answer. Sure. It. But what? Uh, how was the cruise like? Because I, I didn't go. I, I was working. But how how was the cruise socially? It did have, um, you know, some some people who had been in in uh, supporting supportive of our president-elect and some that had not been and you know as we all know over the last six weeks the weeks leading up to the election a lot of people's political positions were somehow conflated and blended and blurred into personal yeah so this is i mean when you preface this by asking me like a, a deeply personal question this is not that personal a question well uh, this is just the first one okay okay um so <laughs> it was oh, – I mean I think John will agree. At the end of the day, it was a fun cruise. It was a good cruise. You know, It did not have – we had a nice turnout by normal standards. We did not have great turnout for a post-election cruise, and I don't think that had nearly as much to do with National Review's sort of Trump skepticism as it had to do with the fact that pretty much when we asked people to write checks to sign up for the cruise, everyone thought Hillary was going to win. Yeah. No one wanted to go on that boat and talk about Hillary, you know. And so hmm. we had, I don't know, 350, 360 people, um, which is good for a normal cruise, but is sort of, it's definitely low for a post election cruise. And the thing is, yeah, the, I would say, you know, for me personally, the most exhausting thing on the cruises is always the dinners. And it's not that the people you have dinner with are bad people or are unpleasant people or any of that kind of stuff. It's just exhausting seven nights in a row for someone like me to take the Kleenex boxes off of my feet and right, like, yeah. go out there and be a socially engaged person every single night. And the um, but the dinners on this one, again, most of the people were great, but were a little more exhausting because normally when you're sort of holding court at the table, you can speak in one frequency to the whole table. I mean, occasionally you'll get very occasionally you'll get some crank who thinks that Obama is a is a gay Muslim terrorist who wasn't born here. Um, but normally mm-hmm. everyone's fairly yes, I'm listening. <laughs> normally everyone's sort of you know in the broad spectrum, mainstream conservative, decent, interesting people, well yeah. read, and all the rest. And um, but the problem here was that you, if you said something that was too critical of Trump, someone at one end of the table would object. And if you said something that was too positive about Trump, someone at the other end of the table would object. Fantastic. There was a lot more crosstalk. Um, I think yeah. David French got manhandled a little bit. Um, but all in all, you know, I, I got to say that even the people who were 
truly giddy, and we, I think we were all mostly pretty happy about the situation. And we, you know, we thought Hillary Clinton's tears were delicious. Um, um, you know, you could say skeptical things about Donald Trump, and you know how you hope, you know, you're, you're we're proven wrong and all that kind of stuff. And you didn't get a lot of pushback. There are a lot of people there who voted for him on the grounds that he wasn't Hillary and the, the yeah. Supreme Court and all that kind of stuff. And um, there was a much more skepticism out there than you might think. And so it, it was – it's not a representative sample of conservatives, but it was a really interesting sample of conservatives. Yeah. you know, I think we should explain that what, what happens on these National Review and Weekly Standard, these cruises, is that every All night – Everyone's got a cruise. I mean they – uh, right. The, every every yeah, that's right. classic movie says a cruise. That's right. I think so, Ted Talks should give a cruise. They can just call him Ted Cruz. I'm sorry. Oh <laughs> my God. So <laughs> wow. Every night. Uh, every wait, night at wait, eight. So every night at eight. You're not starting drink, You should start drinking. You need a little. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your best material here, Jonna. Yeah. So every night at eight, uh, there's a dinner, and the writers or whoever's on these cruises, uh, you know, representing the organization hosts a table and there are eight or 10 people that sit with you and you generally have a kind of common conversation about whatever. And everyone who is there is of course a politically engaged person and a reader, a reader of national review, a reader of the weekly standard, if it's a weekly standard cruise or something like that. And so they want to ventilate their own views. They're happy to meet other people of like-minded views from different places. And um, uh, I think we were all very nervous that the general uh, quality of a of a cruise right. after Hillary's victory was going to be a kind of civil war in which people who really didn't want her to win were going to, you know, yell at right. those of us who were in the uh, who were secretly in the not Trump camp. Yeah. Um, and blame us, and then we would blame them, and it was going to be the sort of the rehearsed civil war that we all expected after after a Trump defeat. And obviously, we are now in uncharted territory. Not only because this guy who went, you know, from an escalator to the White House in 17 months is now going to be president, but because nobody has any idea what he's going to do. <laughs> What way he's so, going to do it, where he's going to do it, <laughs> whether these cabinet appointments indicate an ideological direction or a pragmatic direction. Right. But so you, everyone's but flying you, but, you, but you guys had fun on the cruise, right? And it was, yeah, 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 it was good. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Good. Weather was best. <laughs> weather, weather was fantastic. Weather was fantastic. Maybe yeah. it's all going to be fine. Maybe that's the, the thing. It's all going to be fine. And, and, uh, and, um, and we, can, we, we, we can talk about pop culture because it's all going to well, be fine. Well, you know, there's an interesting thing about pop culture in the last three weeks, which I think is, is now becoming very clear. Media and pop culture together. Uh, there was a big, big controversy erupted on on Twitter yesterday after okay, BuzzFeed. Okay, i, I got to stop you. No, I'm talking um, about BuzzFeed. Okay. BuzzFeed published a piece by Kate Arthur about uh, the minister of the, the Gaineses, the Gaineses who host a show called Fixer Upper on the oh, – right. Uh, I don't know the House and Garden Channel on, the, on that yeah. channel that you watch and people that are, I've never they're, watched. They're right, about, they're, they're, oh, they always seem to be putting tile down. Right, and so, then there's always a scene in those shows where they go, oh, "We have to talk to the owners. This is going to be over budget." <laughs> and then there's a weird drama about you wanted the green tile. That turns out that's the crackle finish. Oh, you know, act break. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, it's like right. they're all the same. I mean, I do the watch games. them. I mean, I watch them. It's amazing, but they're, they're, it's, there's a certain amount of it, 
at a certain point, you can see this is it's like that pasta extruding machine, just turning out sheets and sheets of this stuff, just cutting it arbitrarily at moments. But go ahead. So they uh, they're conservative Christians and they live in Texas, and so this piece was published about how their the minister of their church is opposed to same sex marriage, and that seemed to be the entirety of the piece. Is their minister is opposed to same sex marriage? This is an outrage. And they won't answer the question of whether they support their minister's opinion about same-sex marriage. And so uh, BuzzFeed got swamped by conservative intellectuals and conservative journalists on Twitter saying, essentially, this is McCarthyite and this is why this this kind of um, – This is why you can't have nice things. Right. And, right. And, but I was struck by uh, the fact that – we now have a situation in which, more radically than ever before, it seems to me, the people who produce popular culture, television, movies, and all that, now really hate half the country. I mean, it may well be that unlike a certain amount of contempt or this or that, this whole thing about how we've never been so divided, I'm talking about hatred and and and. So that, you know, uh, they're the people who, you know, are the senior executives at the HG channel or whatever, I'm sure share the general social liberalism of the, you know, of, of the sort of media elites. And they're making a lot of money off the Gaineses as Annie made money off Duck Dynasty and, and Paula Dean and all of that. And, and so there's going to be this general war against anything that smacks of conservatism to attempt to get these media leaders to cut off any yeah. presentation of conservatism you, on the one hand. On the other hand, I think you also have in your it world, like Rob, small, a small thing, it, it, any little Twitter controversy. It's like, come on. I mean, it's it, not the Twitter controversy. It's a question of whether it represents a general attitude that is going to say, if you hold the opinion, this is the odd part of Trump winning. Right. See, hold the opinions that the president of the United States holds. You are beyond the pale. You are you are outside of an acceptable. Yeah, history. I mean, I suspect I, that that that's like that's a, there are gonna be hiccups like this all the time. Um, maybe I mean, look, this is a, this is an interior decorating channel, so they're probably. I'm trying to thread this needle well. They're probably <laughs> a little bit more in tune with this issue. Do you know what I'm saying, John? I'm, do you know what I'm trying to say? I'm so I think you should spell, spell it out. Spell it out. Well, I'm just saying that there are a lot of people, wonderfully talented people on that channel, working on that channel, who probably use the terms pop of color and <laughs> matchy matchy. And this so, needs a right. throw. This okay, needs a throw. But I, I, Rob, I get it. Actually, I get it. I get I, you. I'm making a serious point, and I want oh, okay. to, maybe you could take it seriously okay, as I, follows, I, which right, is, right. which I, is, I, put, I gotta put you how, how, how are the people in your now. industry, uh-huh. how are the people in your industry going to handle the fact that they are going to be making programming, holding a mood in which they believe the United States has just flushed itself down the toilet, and that, and that you know the people who elected. The next president are themselves 
a basket of deplorables? Can you produce? Yeah, yeah can you produce entertainment it. for them feeling yes. that that way? Well, you think so? No. Well, there's two, there's two problems with that, with your question. One is a they'll get over it. They'll just start. They'll just do what they do. If anything, they'll just go back to what they should be doing, which is either ta- either presenting people arguing about stuff from a legitimate perspective, meaning you have somebody on each side arguing in good faith. You know, the crossfire world. Uh, if CNN put Crossfire back on, the Crossfire was famous yelling. If you're <laughs> for you young people, if uh, if you don't remember, people just sat on a Crossfire and they just yelled at each other across the across the table, and it was considered at the time a little bit déclassé, right? Because oh, all they're doing is shouting, and so the so to upgrade their image and upgrade their programming, what CNN did was they said, okay, we'll just get rid of all the conservatives. And there'll be no argument. But if you actually put Crossfire back on, it would be a ma- magnificent improvement. Uh, that, that, so that's one thing. The, 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 you could easily get over it. You could easily get over this if you want. The second thing is the problem with the conservatives in the media is, is you, you know that by looking at the electoral map. The, all the people are in the coasts and the GDP is there and they're in the coasts and they're in the cities and that's where there's a concentration of people. So you can make a whole lot of money not not selling television to, to a television product to the Trump voter. You really actually can. It, people may not want to hear that, but it's, it, is, it is mathematically true. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with that is that if everyone's going after the same, you know, then you have your quirky oddball comedies all, you know, the new girl competes with the Mindy Project, competes with, you know, other little quirky, the, all these. And, Search and, party. Yeah. And everyone's just fighting for like the, the 500 millennials who aren't out, uh, you know, Instagramming. Um, boy, that that's that's an old man way to put it. They're not all <laughs> doing the Instagramming machine. Get, but, get you your know, head out of the machine and look around you. Um, Rob, I don't know what you're talking about, though. I just heard President Obama say this week that every bar and restaurant in this country (laughs) is blaring Fox News 24-7. What bar is that? I know. What bar has Barack Obama been to in the last seven and a half years that had a TV on, never mind, was blaring Sean Hannity? And to whom did he say this? Jonah. To mother to uh, to Rolling Stone magazine. So, yeah, he was yeah. complaining about fake news to Rolling Stone magazine, which just lost a forty million dollar judgment, making up a you know publishing a made up story about a sexual was, assault was, on campus. It was fake but accurate. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, My, I, 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 you guys travel a lot. Well, you don't, John, but because you, I don't because no one, no one no one wants me. Let's face it. Right. Nobody, I, was gonna, I was trying to come up with a nice way to say that, but I decided that hey, in Trump's America, we're just going to say it. I, I say what you what you think. Um, I'm a fighter, uh, but Jonah travels a lot because he's very popular and has a lot of speeching engagements, and just in general, sort of more of a you know lives a, a, a more full life. Um, when you're walking down, <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just keep going with it. When you're walking down the uh, the the that the airport lounge or whatever they call it, the concourse. Every single TV, every single TV, every single TV is CNN. Yeah. And I know Fox very much wants to crack into that market, sure. and I think that they should. Um, although, frankly, I would just rather have no TV blaring in airports. I find it really annoying. It, 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 to me, it's vaguely Orwellian. You yes. must imbibe the news, you know. Um, <laughs> and um, actually, it's sort of a side note, kind of reminds me of uh, – um, you know, I, I, some of you may recall I wrote a book called Liberal Fascism, 
and a little book, uh, a little book, a little flop called liberal fascism. And so I had to, I had to read, um, uh, for reasons having to do with original sin, uh, Hillary Clinton's it takes a village. And I'm like one of the only people out there to have read the book. The only other person I know of for sure who read it was PG O'Rourke. And he was the first person to call it a fascist book. But, um, there's this great, part in there where she's you know she's trying to make kids the most important thing in everyone's lives and that all public policy has to be driven around the crisis of our children and won't someone please do something for the children and so she proposes that they put up giant television monitors everywhere every in every public space where people gather at the dmv at the bus stop and show on a continuous loop instructional videos of how to breastfeed. <laughs> you know, I don't think they need to breastfeed you guys, but you know what maybe America needs Good is to be man. getting some wine through the I'm mail. Sorry. That's the subject. That's impossible the to get wine through the mail. John, uh, that's, no. that's impossible. There's you're, literally you're, no way to do that. Uh, au contraire, Rob. Uh, because what? if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink, the new way to get all the best wines perfectly matched to your palate. Wink, spelled W-I-N-C, works directly with winemakers and growers from all over the world to create delicious wine and deliver it right to your door. Wink's 100% satisfaction guarantee means if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love, no questions asked. You don't get just... You don't just get sent random bottles, Rob. Wink is a personalized wine membership that recommends wine especially for specifically for you based on yes. the results of your palate profile quiz. You can also rate all the wine you receive from Wink so they learn about your taste with every order and constantly personalize the wine they send. Sign up for Wink right now and gain immediate insider access to the best fine wine from all over the world. Find out for yourself why the hosts of Glob Culture and thousands of other satisfied yes. members are raving about Wink. Remember, holidays are approaching. Need to send a gift? Here's a hint. Send wine. Wink makes it easy for you to send an impressive gift this holiday season. Wink has a ton of great gift package options for the wine lover in your life. Check out their gift cards or personalized wine gift packages. The best part? Wink is offering Glop listeners $20 off right now when you go to trywink.com slash glop. They'll even cover the shipping. That's trywink.com. T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash glop. Stop whining and start drinking great wine. Right. And wink for sponsoring Glop Culture. It is, it, I it see is what you did there. Great, it, is, uh, it is, in fact, a good uh, – it's really kind of cool. Um, it's kind of like Uber and Tinder for wine. Like you're, you – they send you a lot of choices. You get a lot of choices. Have sex. You get wine. to date widely and then, uh, and then it comes right to your door. So I guess Uber and Tinder for wine – yeah, so it's the prostitution for wine. It's an escort service for wine. Wow, but it's not grinder. For wine. Well, I don't know. It's up to you. <laughs> I don't know why. Why? why? What's look, wrong with uh, grinder? You know, What's hey, wrong with grinder? Everything's so, <laughs> everything's out there. With grinder. Um. So Fidel Castro died. You guys. Yay! <laughs> That's why we should have like soundtracks on this. We'd have like just a nice line of applause in the background when you say that. But anyway, go I mean, on. like that. I don't think he's I mean, dead. Like when they- Cut away on on Monty Python's flying circus to that sort of like yeah, crew the, the, of the, the, old the, women, the royal the uh, aristocratic women clapping. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's dead. I think he's with Tupac. 
Interesting. You don't no laughter for you guys because you're so out of it. Tupac Shakur. I'm so out of it. That's such a that's such a today reference, Rob. Well, it is are, are the Glob podcast now. If that counts as a today reference. Hey, Pod <laughs> gave me grief on the cruise for make, telling a Helen Keller joke at our last podcast. Oh, what was so. it? Oh, just something about how you know people forget that part of her struggle was that she's doing was also, it again. She was also colorblind. <laughs> How, that, how that's she, very. There was a very polite, gracious chuckle there. No, it was. I, I enjoyed that. How uh, how did she burn? Okay, well, I'm face? not going to tell a Polish joke. Okay. She, how did you burn her face? How did you burn her face? Iron. Giant Answer the iron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell a Polish joke. Okay. So. Well, like you can't. How did? How did the not Polish terrorist drown? How. He hijacked a train to Cuba. Oh, John. Okay, now that's really an old because when was the last time anybody hijacked a plane to Cuba? That now, was like now, now, now you're explaining like every it. Every six okay, months now you're in explaining 1970. It. Don't explain it. Just I have move to move on. You're, you're different material. Fidel Castro was dead. Um, Yay! 90-something. <laughs> but it seemed kind of like what I loved about – what I loved about it. What I, what, one of the things I loved about it was that um, everyone ran the obits that they had been writing and rewriting and updating for, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years on him. And some, I think it was CNN, somebody or ta- ran an obit that actually had not yet fully been edited, had, include, had an editor's note that they ran by mistake in brackets. But he said he outlived, uh, you know, five out of six presidents and um, – in big brackets, it said, check if George H.W. Bush is still alive when you run this. Yeah, no, I saw that. That was awesome. Because then you have to change the number. But, they, of course, they didn't. nobody bothered to reread the obit. They just ran it, pressed send without checking that um, little editor's note. So that editor's note was included in the obit. Um, hey, uh, how, why did the, the terrorists drown? Sorry. <laughs> so um, – First of all, just because this reminds me, uh, if you ever get a chance to hear, I think it's the Radiolab podcast about when a Alan Funt was on a plane when an actual hijacker tried to take it to Cuba and everybody on the plane thought it was a candid camera stunt and it wasn't. Um, it's really a great podcast. Um, but uh, Alan Funt. Is that, You're making an Alan Funt reference. I know this is a mistake, and I'm um, the one who gets made fun of. <laughs> I'm making cool. a reference to a hip, edgy, new current That's affairs true. podcast. That's okay. right. It happens to be about an interesting bit of pop culture history. Jonas, uh, old wine in new skins. That's what that's what that is. That's uh, what you're, you're, you're repurposing it. So, um, uh, here's my real question: How soon? In months, I guess months, years, can we do a glop, uh, live glop podcast from the, you know, the Starlight Room? Cruise. Well, the or the Starlight Room in at the Havana, you know, Four Seasons. Um, is that going to happen? I mean, it, or, is it going to be? Is, is is Cuba? I mean, we're already sort of, you know. Obama's already put this in motion, but is Cuba going to start to become like the cool destination, the new Vietnam where you go and suddenly everyone's Instagramming pictures of their, uh, you know, Cubano uh, media noche sandwich and stuff? Not while Raul's alive, I don't think. 
Um, I, you know, I, the, the, the Castro spent the last 20 years of his life setting it up so that like his, his personal dynasty lives on forever. They run the economy and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's going to change all that much anytime soon. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I want to, I want to read a tweet from Geraldo Rivera that I wrote about in my column last week about all this. And, um, um, because I find, I find Castro apologias to be among the most fascinating insights into people's character. Um, you know, if I, if I say Pinochet without just, just Pinochet on Twitter, 500 lefties will attack me as apologizing for a murderer. But if I'm even mildly critical of Castro who killed 10 times more people than Pinochet did, um, they're like, Oh, you don't get it. He's complicated. You know, literacy rates, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so here's, um, here's Gerardo Rivera on Twitter. Conservatives mocking nuanced view of Fidel Castro make me gag. What do they say about real Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, or Elvis? And well, you know, it's, it's that kind of genius political commentary for which we have <laughs> to thank... We have to thank Roger Ailes, <laughs> Roger Ailes for having resurfaced Geraldo Rivera in the mid '90s and give, right. giving him, you know, shows on CNBC and then bringing him over to Fox. I mean, he was like, he was like dead as a door, <laughs> doornail, and Roger kind of pumped life back into him for some strange reason, just so that he could exist right. in the public sphere to tweet out idiocy like that. I mean, well, he, he he has a point about Elvis. Well, yeah, I mean, Elvis killed a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah people. there's not a lot of nuance, I think. I mean, and if you've been to Graceland, as, as I've been to Graceland several times, and the the most interesting part of that tour are the uh, torture rooms and the gulag. I mean, that I stuff agree. is really it's interesting. The Museum right? of Victims, you know, was built next door. <laughs> it's really it's, there's an eternal flame. It's really very moving. Um, he just killed people by encouraging them to get type two diabetes. So it's slower. He had like you know his, thing, his fingerprints were on all the time. Um, I think it's interesting. It still struck me as what was interesting was that that the the worst in Comia, you know, Justin uh, Canadian Premier Justin Trudeau and um, the Irish Prime Minister and the President of the EU, um, they got their hats handed to them. It seemed to me, um, and you know, Trudeau Trudeau was not attending the funeral. Uh, I think because he made such a hash of his tear-stained tribute to Fidel upon his death that he decided it would be imprudent for him actually to be, you know, pictured at the gravesite. Um, so, uh, you know, the the response has been hasn't quite been as bad as I thought. It seemed like people were deeply discomfited by open tributes to somebody who turned an island into a prison. And, you know, the whole joke about the literacy stuff is it ties in with your, you know, Hillary, the giant screens broadcasting news about breastfeeding. Uh, first of all, the literacy stuff is nonsense. Cuba was a country that was over, had an over 50% literacy rate when Castro took over. Literacy is contagious. When you hit a majority of people being literate, the literacy rate goes to a hundred in a generation because people are able to parents are able to teach children how to read. Hmm. Right. Is that, is that, yeah. No, it's a literally it's literally a social contagion, literacy, because only when it is only known by a minority does it not get 
taught. So yeah. it's like Bill Clinton's cold sore. It just gets around. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Anyway, go on. <laughs> it was so that they could promulgate propaganda to force people to read it day and night. It wasn't like so they could sit around reading, you know, Trollope and and you know and studying important texts in the history of political liberty. It was so that they could be brainwashed constantly. And, and you know, it was an island right. prison. It was organized block by block, and every block had a, you know, had a member of the Secret Service reporting on other people. It was, uh, you know, efficient, a, yeah. it, was a, it was a horrendous, it's been a horrendous thing, and obviously it's sort of, apparently the intensity level of all of that has dropped since... You know, you're the prostitutes make more money than anybody else does uh, now that no, it's become it's a tourist. It's, it's true. Yeah, um, prostitutes have the highest level of income is 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 for prostitution because it's become a sex tourism site for Europeans and others. The way Thailand is a sex tourism site for a lot of people. So that's really great for Cuba. And but I don't know. <laughs> First of all, I think the nation's cruise will, of course, go there and just stay there. And be yes, sad. The yeah. So the nation will certainly, you know, be be dancing. In but the it street. doesn't seem like the, the thing about Cuba is that it's all. I mean, there there was a reason why it was such a glamorous vice den before the revolution. I mean, there's a reason why there's a whole segment in. Guys and Dolls, when Sky Masterson takes, um, uh, well, you know, what's her name? Uh, in the 50s, um, he takes her down to Cuba for, the, for yeah. like the night. I mean, they go for, it's like for 24 hours, and they go and, and they go to Cuba, and it's like, wow, because it's so close. You can just you go there, and it's crazy there. And it seems like that's a pretty good business. Oh, it's a fantastic that, that, that business. It could, I mean, it could return to that, is what I'm trying to say. I mean, I'm, not, I'm trying not to sound like I really want it to, because, but, but no, I No, I do. think it could. I just I – think, I think there will be this overhang until, mm-hmm. until at least, you know, yeah. does right. whatever Vietnam did to move away from being, you know, committed to ideological communism. I just – I do see – I have a picture of Jonah Goldberg in one of those white suits that's like a little sweat-stained but still – you know, respectable, smoking a cigar somewhere. Uh, He'll be smoking a cigar with Steve Mnuchin, the, uh, the Treasury Secretary. Sure. With saying, Steve, Navy. will get to be bigger than U.S. Steel. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone take a look at the cake. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> is the business we chose. <laughs> that weird little thing he does. Now, you know, the business we chose, you guys, is yeah. a culture and we're trying to make <laughs> money. So let's talk about Casper mattresses for a minute. Mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups, and Casper is revolutionizing the, mar- the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, passing that savings directly to the consumer. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. It is an award-winning mattress that won't disappoint, obsessively engineered, shockingly fair price. Mattresses can often cost over 1500 bucks. Casper's 500 for a twin size, 600 for a twin XL, 750 for a full, 850 for queen, 950 for king. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, combining springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. 
and buying it is completely risk-free. Free delivery, free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Best of all, Casper mattresses made in America. Now, here's a special offer to listeners of Glop. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Glop and using Glop as the coupon code. We thank Casper Mattresses for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Okay, uh, two quick things. One, on the cruise, uh, two people came up to me and said that while they condemned it, they understood why we were against it, um, but they thought our juvenile, juvenile discussion about the game of cornholing was one of the funniest things they'd ever heard on this podcast, and they were ashamed at how hard they laughed. And in that spirit, the second thing I wanted to say is <laughs> after the talk of all the sex tourism in Cuba, all I could hear was any number of really cheap, tawdry uh, double entendre jokes as John was reading uh, the mattress commercial. Yeah, uh, about, yeah you know, me too. 50 for a queen, 100 for a king. <laughs> you get to try it out before you buy it. <laughs> so much you bounce. You spend a 30, 30 of life on top of So it. much bounce. <laughs> the only and, thing and that's the missing phone. from the sex tourism the is no, one, no one's giving your money back. The memory phone comes, descent, comes from the – drops down on you on the dance floor. <laughs> so you guys um, – uh, Highlight moment uh, in in American popular culture history. Another passing at the age of ninety. Grant Tinker. Grant Tinker died this week at the age of ninety. Um, arguably one of the key revolutionary figures in American popular culture. One of the people who took television and took it out of the vast wasteland from in which it had been mired, according to Newton Minow, the one-time head of the FCC. And helped uh, create an entirely new world in which programming could be good as opposed to simply mediocre. Um, and Rob's yeah. show, Cheers, was a, ter- a direct beneficiary sure. of the change in sitcoms that Grant Tinker helped engineer with the Mary Tyler Moore show and the change of NBC right. that led to Cheers. He was a little bit more uh, – we should say Grant Tinker was a television producer married to Mary Tyler Moore, and they had an idea for a series in the late 60s, actually, was the idea, and they worked on it. And they, the, 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 the history of the Mary Tyler Moore show, for those of you who are <laughs> – for you kids who don't understand your history, um, is that uh, it, was, it really was a remarkable turn in both the fortunes of a network and also the – for the, the what what you would put on TV to laugh at. It was sophisticated and it was young. It was just about a single woman who was not married in um, in an apartment in a, with a career. Uh, it was not like that girl. That girl was also like kind of a cutting edge show for the time. It was a little bit a few years before that, but it was important that everybody watching that girl knew that Marla Thomas, who played this young career girl. Uh, was engaged. She had a fiancé. She was not running around loose in the city. But Mary Tyler Moore was running around loose in uh, Minneapolis. And there, when, when they were uh, produced, putting the show together for CBS, CBS, like they, they said, there's no way the show could ever go uh, because everyone will think that if, if, we, if Mary Tyler Moore is playing a single woman 
everyone watching the show will think that she and Dick Van Dyke got divorced. (laughs) That's really true. Because the previous uh, show she's on, the Dick Van Dyke show, she played Laura Petrie, his wife, and the mother of their kids. So now she was playing this career girl, running around loose, and um, the uh, pilot was this weird pilot that was written. They'd never written anything like this before. And um, if you haven't seen the pilot for, for Mary Tyler Moore, I think it's online. You should see it. It's really, really great. Jim Brooks, there's some incredibly talented people did it. Mary Tyler Moore herself was terrified the whole time. I think she fired the writing staff in some kind of weird panic attack like three, four or five times when they were shooting the pilot because she thought this is a disaster. Grant Tinker was the first guy to say he was just a, he was a, you know he's an executive. He said he actually yelled at her um, a couple times in front of like the entire company to just say the lines. Um, so he's a hero to every writer ever. He, <laughs> he, 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 he protected the writers. He like pushed it on the network. And then and CBS at that time had only what they called these kind of um, rural comedies. It was all, uh, you know, Beverly Hillbillies. Like they were, they were doing OK, but it was kind of the sunset of that time. And Mary Tyler Moore was like the first urban kind of modern show about young modern people um even though i think she was 40 at the time and the other weird thing is if you watch the show it uh uh it, it, you could see it you could see the change in the in the world in american and american culture in our sense of what uh young women were allowed to do because they had to make her live in a studio apartment with a pull-out sofa and they made a big deal about that they, there was no other room in that – when you were watching that show, you were at her in her set, you were watching everything. She did not have a secret hidden bedroom there with like a bunch of men in there waiting you know, for her. They, they, it, you saw the whole thing. There was something chaste about it. She could you watched the show it. very differently than I did. Yes. Well, I'm just telling you how <laughs> but, it was you know, <laughs> But that's what – But that's, it is an amazing thing, and I know a lot of sort of younger people, the young people – um, they may not quite get just that weird uh, thing that happened in the culture right in those years. Grant Tinker made that happen, and then um, ten years later, barely ten years later, he um, he was uh, hired to run NBC when NBC was like the number three network, almost the number four network. It was losing to like uh, some weird network that somebody put together, and uh, they had no money. And so some guys came to him that he had worked with before on the Bob Newhart show, and they said, "Hey, we have a show we want to set in a bar. Here's the story." And he basically developed Cheers the way they developed Mary Tyler Moore Show, which is like they built the set and they had auditions on the set and they did all this stuff. None of it was provisional. They were going to put it on, but they had no money. So and the network was broke, so they had nothing to replace it. So the first year of Cheers, it was like number of the top 100 shows in the nation. It was like number 93. It was a giant failure. But because they were broke, they had to stick with it by the second year and the third year it had taken off. And the same story was true. And the same story was true of Hill Street Blues, which was arguably, I think, the most important. You could make the case that Hill Street Blues was the most important show in television history because it it changed the nature of the one-hour drama, made it more serious, made it more serialized, uh, massive cast. First time you had sort of like 14 or 15 cast members. Um, uh, you know, weird tone, half weirdly comedic, very serious and you know almost everything that followed every great television show that you can name that that followed would have been unthinkable without Hill Street Blues which was kept on the air for exactly the same reason which is that NBC had no money 
and it, it and so it it leveraged the fact that it had created that and shares these two very highly praised but low rated shows until the point came at which the culture turned and people started you know watching them so so he changed sitcoms he changed drama uh he was a civilized person yeah it was a super uh, elegant guy like you would walk you he uh, i met him a bunch of times and he would walk in he looked like your idea of what a network president should look like. He had silver hair. He was sort of wiry and trim. He was always dressed like, like incredibly elegantly, but like casually too. Like he wasn't a suit, but he was always wearing a blazer and a blazer is always like super well cut. He, and he was incredibly gracious. And, um, he just, it, he just was the last guy like that. He, he really was it. That's it. We don't have that anymore. Um, now speaking I of saw him once, I think I even saw him once walking on the stage. He had a, like a he was like he had a sweater tied around his neck, you know, like like a that's like the Tony official Roberts, uniform of you know? your people, Rob. Yeah, I know it really is, and it's like it was like uh, I don't know. You don't you don't you just you don't you don't see that kind of class anymore, fellas. You don't just don't see it. <laughs> hey, well, I have a question. No, I, oh, go ahead. Wait, um, uh, I you know I have nothing to add about Tinker other than that I. Salute his legacy, but uh, at Hill Street Blues, which I dearly loved, and I was always mad at NBC for not letting it end as they wanted it to end. But um, it's isn't it weird for such a hugely influential show that, with the exception basically of Dennis Franz, um, and you could argue David Caruso, <laughs> um, that show had no lasting spinoff stars. Um, and St. Elsewhere produced St. Elsewhere, which was the show that followed Hill Street Blues in its model, the hospital show as opposed to the cop show, produced how many stars did it produce? Denzel Washington was on David Morris. Um, but I mean, there were like big yeah. stars. Well, that like block, crazy, Denzel Morris, was yeah. obviously the biggest one, but um, right. uh, but well, yeah, Mark Hill Street Harmon. Blues, <clears throat> right? Mark Harmon, uh. Okay. Well, that's also kind of a weird thing because if you – the way things were cast back then – I mean, History Blues probably cast in 1980, maybe maybe even 79. If you look TV in the 70s and in the early 80s by definition, um, was was not very attractive. And it wasn't really – I mean it wasn't really designed – it wasn't star-driven. You, you would get – you'd be the lead in a TV show and no one had ever heard of you. You had done you maybe you got a Tony, but nobody ever saw the Tony. I mean, it, it, it was it was the kind of world in which if you're going to do Barney Miller, um, uh, you could cast as Barney Miller, uh, Hal Linden, and America was like Hal Linden. Who's that? I mean, it, it, the, if you if you if you watch Happy Days, at the time when Happy Days was like the number one show in the world in the country. And the, the and the character of the Fonz was on every lunchbox, and at every schoolyard, people were imitating the Fonz. Henry Winkler would be the last person on earth you would cast to play this role. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, a five Winkler. foot four inch Jew playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah who's Poland, clearly son of yeah? Yeah, who's not does not look Italian. Is doing a fake accent. Is not cool by any definition of the word, but it's like it, it was bananas. You look at it, it's bananas. Like even like you watch the those seventies Norman Lear comedies, and the close-ups are so close. I mean, Carol O'Connor is an elderly fat guy, 
and he's the star of a show and they're and the cameras like I mean when they do a close up of Carol O'Connor any of those people it's close it's like their face fills the screen it's crazy and you think well who shouldn't there be attractive people on TV <laughs> and that's that sort of started in the 80s really in the in the 90s people said well what do we put some good looking people on how much money could we make then and that that, that went the other way and now you have these strange you know shows where uh, six young, attractive people all are friends. Um, but for a while, it, yeah, you'd say, I, I know the other person that tested for the role, I mean, went to the network and studio to test for the role of the Fonz. Um, and neither one of them I would have ever cast in a million years in that role. Well, that's hilarious because, yeah, the guy, we, we both know the, yeah. the, guy, the idea that he was supposed to be the coolest person in Milwaukee. <laughs> I mean, okay, granted, it's Milwaukee, but nonetheless, yeah, like still. Um, yeah. you know, so, but, uh, you know, I, I, some of the cable, you know, obviously you could make the case that the Sopranos and Breaking Bad and shows like that followed some of that model. Like, I mean, James Gandolfini was a nobody, certainly not a, you know, certainly not a conventionally <laughs> attractive guy. And he gave this, you know, powerfully dominating performance and Brian Cranston, who had been a middle rank sitcom star uh, supporting a kid who was at the center of the show that he was a star of. I mean, who would have thought that he would end up, you know, in this epical performance on Breaking Bad? You know, it's sort of interesting well, how. There the stakes were small. They were small outfits with a limited budget and a sort of a visionary guy at the head of it who was kind of lying to them about what he was really planning to do. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are really, really tiny, you know? Right. But you know where the stakes are not tiny, and that's our intellectual life, Rob. Our intellectual life in America is under challenge. And, you know, that's why the great courses is so important, because when we have some downtime, we love to take that time to learn something new, and that's why we're fans of the Great Courses Plus which offers really engaging video lectures presented by award-winning professors and experts in their fields. Unlimited access to hundreds of topics, history, politics, science, even cooking and photography. New courses added all the time, so there's always something new to learn. Stream the Great Courses Plus anytime, anywhere from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, TV. This month, a new recommendation, the Great Courses Plus Hobby and Leisure Courses How to Play Chess. <clears throat> I need to watch this because... My six-year-old practically beat me at chess last week because I was sitting making the moves, and I real, you know, he actually saw where he could move two things ahead and take my, put me into checkmate. So, you know, in order to play more, take your horsey thing. Exactly. I, I think I thing. need to watch the Great Courses Plus chess course. Um, and we're offering uh, our listeners an opportunity to get a full month of unlimited access to all the great lectures for free. When you sign up using our special URL, so get started watching your first month free today. Here is the URL: thegreatcoursesplus.com/glop. That's thegreatcoursesplus, all one word, no spaces, no anything. dot com slash glop. So, and you know, maybe one of you guys can come over and play chess with my son Isaac and and show him that adults are better. You generally speaking, better at this than kids. Um, that was a very sobering moment for me. So, what, did you handle it well? I, I, I'm, 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 I, I'm asking. I mean, so cute. It, he was, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was so impressive watching him, watching right. 
you know. So it's like a little bit of mixture of pride and humiliation at the same time. Well, I think yeah, something like that. I mean, uh, this boy sits and he watches Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune at seven, and he mm-hmm. he actually like guessed a couple of Wheel of Fortune puzzles. Like it's kind of startling to see it. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so just, a, just a thread to the last. He's a genius, and he's beautiful, and he's yeah. a genius. As are my other two children. <laughs> now, guys, uh, I got in a fight on Twitter the other day about who huh? the greatest what? screen actor. What? You? What? No. Yes. <laughs> about who the greatest screen actor in Hollywood history was, because uh, a, a young whippersnapper writing for the Federalist wrote something about Cary Grant, whom, of course, everyone adores, and uh, contrasted Grant unfavorable or favorably with James Stewart particularly in relation to the, you know, one movie they made together, The Philadelphia Story. And he said that, you know, Grant, James Stewart was to Grant in The Philadelphia Story as Ralph Bellamy, who was the stooge, was to Grant in The Awful Truth. Oh. And His Girl Friday, where Bellamy is the sort of sexless schlub who is going to marry Grant's ex-wife. And Grant... That's wrong. It's an incorrect opinion, whoever has that opinion. It's insane. Uh... Um, and so I got into a tussle, a little bit of a tussle, per- perfectly friendly. But Scott Immergut, our producer, thought that maybe we should have a little conversation about who who was, who were the greatest male and female stars <clears throat> in Hollywood history. Because I think a case can be made that Jamie, that Jimmy Stewart was, in fact, the greatest. Yeah, male you could probably make a case. You could yeah. probably. I think that'd be a very, very, very strong case because just of the range, you, he could play. Uh, Male Ingenue was really which what he played in Philadelphia Story. Uh, he could play um, leading man in Crisis. You know, Tom. He could play the Tom Hanks roles. It's a Wonderful Life. He could play the uh, George Clooney or Matt Damon roles in Vertigo. He could play uh, sheer comedy. Um, well, with Philadelphia Story, sheer comedy, and a few others. He did sheer comedy. I mean, he had like there was a certain he was a wet. He 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 did westerns. Yeah, he did westerns, and he, he did like the, he could also do that 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 uh, that kind of sexy leading man, um, curmudgeon-y, but but in Rear Window, which is a really remarkable performance for a guy, uh, because it's he can't move around and it's all in his face. Um, and then he and then even in the Hitchcock rooms, then he plays like this weird fascist uh, teacher professor in Rope. I mean, he he. The guy could do a lot of stuff. I think it's because he legitimized everything he said. He just kind of said it, and it sounded real. And so once you once you can achieve real, everything else is, you know, just falls falls along with it. He just always seemed to be real. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I, when we first started talking about doing this, I I was going to make a case for Jimmy Stewart too, but I think he did it well. Um, I do think, which bothers me saying it, you can make a case for Paul Newman. I mean, Paul Newman was mm-hmm. a pretty impressive. He he held the screen really well to his last days. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and then had much much better range, I thought, than Robert Redford, who everyone always compared him to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if Newman, Newman had this very had, had this entirely unique quality, which is that he was a very very good looking guy, even quite a pretty man. But he had this startlingly gravelly voice. This kind of rough, low, 
gravelly voice. I feel like Bill Murray in, in I feel like Bill Murray in um, Groundhog Day, where Annie McDowell is describing her ideal man, and as you talk, I'm just going me. Me, yeah, right. Me, also me, also me. Yeah, I'm really close on this one. Gravelly voice. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go on. I mean, you know, in terms of money or in terms of sort of box office and stuff like that, Tom Hanks apparently is without question the most successful. The the person who, like a right. great pitcher, he can do comedy, he can do drama, he can do action. Uh, right. You know, he was a star in his twenties. He's now a star in his late fifties. Um, you know, that there's, there's, and, and I think it's probably pretty close, um, that, uh, you know, Hanks, if he survives another, you know, 10 years will, you know, will, will be in a, in a yeah. unique position in film history. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for the, the w- women, list, yeah, but, I yeah, but also, but also like, you know, he's made a, an astonishing array of good movies in many decades. You know, I mean, Jimmy Stewart made his last really good movie in 1962 and he acted for another 15 years. I mean, his last really good movie was the man who shot Liberty Valance. And then, Wait you know, and then it sort of became, he was in the towering inferno, wasn't he? He was not in the Towering Inferno. No, that's Fred Astaire, dude. That's oh. right. <laughs> but, um, Wait, he was in one of them, though. Wasn't he? Was he? I don't think. I don't think he. He wasn't in Earthquake. No, I don't think he was uh, in any. Earthquake. What a great movie! Really. Uh, your Charlton Heston was in Earthquake. Charlton Heston, David Gardner, George Kennedy. It's John one of Rob's. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Loves. He loves that Earthquake. Stewart. Stewart. Where it are you going? It was in Sense Around. And then uh, Charlton Heston turns to Ava Gardner. He's so mad. He goes, I don't know. Anywhere. A bar. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, so, bar. And at the end, the end, when the water comes through, just a second, John, this is important. When the water comes through in uh, L.A. and, and, and the, the being, they're being swept away, and he has a choice. Charlton Heston has a choice. He can go with his loathsome wife, Ava Gardner, who he hates and who's been like manipulating him forever. Um, and whose father-in-law is basically responsible for the disaster, or he can just let her go, and he can go and be with uh, Jean-Pierre Bujold, um, and he chooses to go with Ava Gardner, and they are swept down the sewer, and poor Jean-Pierre Bujold is there, and as she stands up for the manhole cover or something, then George Kennedy, who's a tough cop, looks around and says, um, this used to be a hell of a town. <laughs> you know, you know my favorite thing in Earthquake. I don't know how we got into Earthquake, but my my single favorite thing in Earthquake is that every now and then they cut to some drunk wandering around, and you sort of only see him from the back. And it's Walter Matthau. Yeah, <laughs> Walter Matthau has this insane cameo throughout Earthquake, where he, he's like the village. He's like Otis the drunk walking walking through the earthquake. Um, uh, uh, Mathau would be, you know, on my list of like my probably my favorite actor of all time. Even though I don't think you could make a case that he was the greatest screen actor of all time. But, but there was- you go. That, that's 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 my point about the, the show business is that Walter Mathau, even in the seventies, this you know very unattractive person was routinely cast as the leading man, as yeah. the romantic lead, and. Uh, 
insane. He was just so fantastic. It's like come to a movie theater and sit in the dark for two hours and stare at 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 stare at Walter Matthau's nostril hair. (laughs) He was just that was the that was the one sheet practically. He was a joy. He was just a joy to watch. He was a joy to watch. That's the thing about him. The way Cary Grant was a joy to watch. But a really interesting question is who would fit the category of the greatest female screen actor of all time. Well, before, before we do that, just one clarification. Well, I'd have to, I'd have to say Cary Grant, actually. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> one quick clarification. So is the, the, is the greatest screen actor of all time synonymous with uh, the best actual actor? You know no. what I'm saying? No, right. No, right. I think so not. That's, that's what I, right. Because so like, you know, like Daniel Day-Lewis is probably the best actor. Right. Uh, of all, you know. Oh, I, I know, but I'm saying you know, like to measure sort of by performance, by, you yeah, know. You so we're, to, we're really talking about if you're in the theater star. watching a Daniel Day Lewis movie, I always, same thing with Meryl Streep. I always get the sense that, 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 that she's next to me watching me watch the movie. <laughs> I never, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I know that I know that theory, but I'm so, I just don't see how you can see Lincoln and say that that's not, you know, one of the five greatest performances that was ever put on film. You know what? I tell you what. I'm not sure that Lincoln is any is that much better from great moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland. The animatronic. I'm not going down Spire this rabbit hole with you. Same. I'm ashamed to say I have still not seen Lincoln. Okay. Well, you should see it. We should well, talk this, about it in the next yeah, show. Spoiler but. alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the problem. There, it's like the Passion of the actress, Christ. They know how it ends. You know how it ends. Is there an actress that you can think of that you would say, you know, just is the is the iconic actress of your, you know, of the way that, Jay, that Stewart or Grant or even Bogart. I mean, people who are like who have this standing even apart from their everything about what they, mm-hmm. you know, what movies they made. Just I don't it's know tough. that there is exactly. I mean, there are actresses who gave iconic performances that transcended their very beings, like Vivian Lee, you know, who was Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. And she then did Blanche Dubois and Street Credit and Bizarre, but she didn't do much else. Um, she was a very sad, sick, crazy person, and her career was, you know, interrupted by her many, you know, institutionalizations and stuff. But um, I don't know if there's if there's an actress who fits that same category, except for Meryl Streep, whom you've already, yeah. you know, criticized. I mean, she's great, but give me a break. Well, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's the distinction I was getting at. She's definitely the best, most talented yeah. actress. Um, of the screen in the last of our lifetimes, but screen star, you know, do you, do you, did she just? I don't think she dominates yeah. that way. You know, well, this is the, this is a crucial, this is a big, big, deep pop culture Hollywood question, which is that there is a difference between being the best at something technically, you know, even artistically, uh, hands down the best or really, really accomplished, and being a movie star. Yeah, and being a movie star is something innate, and it's weird, and it's part of it is you're given it's the charisma lent to you by the fact that you're given a spot and a shot in the screen in the center of the frame, and then part of it is the fact that you just know instinctively how to treat that, like you know what it means to have that, and then part of it is luck because you're given a moment 
where you can transform the frame a lot, where it just you got to I got to watch that person there, even though maybe they're not even in the center of the frame. Yeah. So there's all these weird things, and it comes down to this both the oppor- being an opportunistic person with charisma and having innate charisma, and you don't have to be good at it. You don't. But you have know, to have then there are, funny. I'll tell you, well, if you watch the remake, if you watch the remake of Equalizer with Denzel Washington, that's like to me one of the great examples of how Denzel Washington is just a movie star, because it's it's almost a parody of an action movie. But he yeah. pulls that off. I mean, he Denzel Washington. I can watch almost any movie he makes. He holds your eye in a way that very few of these people. I mean, Tom Hanks can, but it's amazing. You know, totally true. I mean, there's one. You know, it's interesting because there are movies really hold your attention. But you know, there there are people who were huge movie stars. You can't really believe that they were movie stars when you look back in history. I mean, I was just reading this book, Powerhouse, which is a oral history of um, of the uh, of the agency creative artists. And Ron Meyer, who ran the agency, was one of the two people who ran the agency in the 1980s. Says the biggest, without question, the biggest star the agency had, the biggest star in Hollywood. Without question, no one was ever bigger in his entire experience was Sylvester Stallone. The biggest, everything went to him. Right. Schwarzenegger was made by the fact that scripts were written for Stallone that Stallone passed on that then went to Schwarzenegger. That's how Schwarzenegger right. eventually lapped him as a star. And then you have like the late 50s, early 60s, when for five years, the number one box office star in America was Glenn Ford. <laughs> that is, I, I'm not joking. Glenn Ford yeah. was the number one male star, according to the box office, in the United States. Glenn Ford. Name a Glenn Ford movie. Well, there's <laughs> right? the... You cannot name a Western movie. Three Ten oh, yeah, the Yuma. Big Heat. The Big Heat. The Big Heat. Okay, well, you can name them if you really think, but it's not like, you, you know, he name was one. in Three Ten to Yuma. He was in Gilda, though he wasn't the star you, of Gilda. You can name it, yeah. Sure, but Glenn Ford. Glenn that's Ford. What, that's what you say. When you don't know a thing and someone says, you go, yeah, sure, Glenn Ford, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, because in, uh, in, in William uh, Goldman's... A little, bit, a little bit of a, just a Hollywood insight here. When you, um, when you refer to that book, the CAA book, and you say yeah. Ron Meyer, you, it's... Ronnie. It's, you, Ronnie. Yeah, you say Ron, Ronnie Meyer. Ronnie just Meyer. like he your friends. He was the best. Yeah. He was just the best. Ronnie um, was the best. He, he, he I mean, you know, mm-hmm. great executive. Uh one other great thing about Glenn Ford, like Joel McRae, another sort of wonderful actor who never really was entirely like a huge star, they ended up enormously wealthy, both of them, because they took the money that they made and they bought like land in California in Orange County and and you know and around Santa Barbara and stuff like that. Yeah, the Bob Hope. The Joel, Joel McRae ended up. Joel McRae ended up as the largest single landholder in the state of California. Have I told you guys the? the uh, I know we have to wrap it. Have I told you the my, my Fred McMurray story? Uh, not that I remember. All right, well uh, we can we can end with a show. So, so Fred McMurray was another one of those great journeyman actors who was in a lot of movies in the forties uh, and fifties. Uh, one of the best movies ever made, Double Indemnity. He's he's a total heavy. He always played the heavy. And then in the sixties, he's like uh, you know they they put him in a in a comedy called My Three Sons, and he's kind of like the he's he's a widower father of three boys, and he's raising them and his uh, the uncle William Demarest, who's the craggy guy who takes care of the kids. My Three Sons. Um, a big hit, big hit show, and th- that's what they used to do. Put they put the heavy, the guy, the former kind of B level, not B level, but not not um, leading man movie star star 
uh, and they put him in a TV show in the 60s. That's how they built TV. Um, but he was so, at that point, he was so rich because he had bought all this real estate. He, and he was insanely rich even when they gave him the, the, the lead in My Three Sons. But he's also like incredibly stingy, and he didn't want to give them the six to seven to eight months that they needed to shoot the, the show. So he said, I'll do it. But I'll only do it if you shoot all of my scenes in one month and then all my close-ups, everything I do in one month, uh, even out of order, just get it. And then I leave and I'm not going to be there. And then you can shoot the rest of the show around it. And, you know, so people basically would be then filming the scenes where they're supposed to be talking to Fred McMurray, but he's gone. He's playing golf. He's not there, Um, which you can kind of tell if you watch the show now. Um, But they had to pay him. He's like the highest paid actor in television history. Up to that point, they were paying scads of money. He's so rich. So that just sets the table. Rich, Fred McMurray, really, really rich, really, really stingy. This is a story that Bob Newhart told me. He said, um, uh, you know, he's, he was, he was uh, playing golf at the Bel Air Country Club, and he's having lunch, and he's with Fred McMurray friends. So Fred McMurray sits down here talking, and Fred says in that voice, he goes, Bob, the most amazing thing happened to me this morning. Bob, I uh, well, one of our downstairs toilet was making a you know rattly noise, making a funny noise. So we called the plumber, Bob, and the plumber shows up, and he goes in there and he fiddles things around and fiddle. Maybe he's there all of ten minutes, Bob, and he comes out. And he says toilet's fixed, and, uh, and he gave me the bill. Do you know what he charged me, Bob? Fifty dollars. Fifty dollars for ten minutes work. Bob, you and I are in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Richest man in Hollywood. Oh boy! <laughs> well, that was a lesson for Chip. <laughs> Chip and what was the other brother's name? There was Robbie and Chip, and you know, Blip. Ernie. Is there Ernie? Ernie. Right. I don't think it was Blip. I th- I'm pretty sure it wasn't Blip. Right, Blue Chip. Um, so, uh, guys, I think we're, uh, we've, we've, we've reached the end, and we haven't even talked about Mitt and Donald's uh, $1,000 dinner at, uh, at Jean-Georges, which, by the way, is um, they got away pretty cheap for Jean-Georges at $1,000. Yeah. Well, not, neither of them drink. I, well, I tell you, they got, they got Wow, that's right. That's a good point. I know. Well, so I, when I, the bill arrived, did they, like, like, uh, they kind of look at each other like, uh, wait, but you call me. <laughs> I think they slid it to Reince. Yeah, yeah they, he, yeah, they, Ryan's yeah. probably said Ryan's probably did a fa- fantastic check take. Look, fellas, listen, this is a nice thing. I'll take this. And looked at it and did that yeah. Jackie Gleason thing. Like, hey, oh, hey. I would have liked it if when they did the frogs legs things that they, they reprised that scene from the jerk where Steve Martin says, "Ma'am, there are there are snails on the plate. You know, bring me those toasted cheese sandwiches you talked me out of." <laughs> <laughs> So does anybody have anything, <laughs> Rob? Uh, Rob, uh, I think we need to tell people. Oh yeah, I have a, I'm a new have gig. A, wait. Yeah, I have a new gig. You're making uh, a living finally. I'm, I am. Yes. All joking aside, it was good timing. Um, uh, yeah, I'm making a living. Um, I'm, I'm the. I'm running. I'm the executive producer of a of a sitcom. Uh, Comedy on CBS, eight o'clock on eight o'clock on Mondays. Uh, Kevin Can Wait, starring Kevin James. Um, you know, it's been been on for a while, and they kind of want to take it in a slightly new direction, change things around a bit. So that's what I'm here to do. I'm having fun, and he's like I'm the world's nicest guy. He's the world's nicest guy, and you know, it's like anything when you're working with somebody that funny, 
there's a tendency to say, he'll, he'll just make it funny. He'll make this line funny in his little funny way. We don't really have to work that hard on the line. And I, I think that that, had, <laughs> that attitude had like begun to take hold, and you have to fight it. You know, you got to give the guy funny lines. Even though he's really funny, you still need to work for him. I think that's what Trump's uh, speechwriters are, are, are saying now, if he even has them. Uh, so, uh, Jonah, you got anything where people can come come see you aside from um, no, at not. five o'clock? I am um, on a plane to Casper, Wyoming tomorrow, but that's not a public thing, not a public speaking thing. <laughs> um, I just recorded yesterday a new edition of Conversations with Crystal. Which should be up shortly. It was interesting and wide ranging, and uh, uh, that's about it. And uh, I got nothing but the commentary podcast, which you can listen to on Ricochet. That's not nothing. Twice a week. All right, I got I got nowhere you can come see me in public. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. I got like, uh, uh, mostly my life is now taken over by the uh, by the upcoming bat mitzvah of my oldest daughter, which is in uh, the middle of January. Uh, you're not invited, uh, but she is doing the uh, first uh, Parsha of Shmot. So uh, please bone up on Shmot. Uh, and if you have any recommendations of her Dvar Torah, please email them to me. I don't um, – I can't eat Shmot. It, I mean it's just a thing. If I eat Shmot, like I – you know what I'm saying? I mean I, I pay for it later. You know, you know what I mean? No Shmot for me. It's uh, – uh, what can I tell you? It's, uh, it's the beginning of That's the Book of Exodus. She's reading the beginning of the book of Exodus, but it's in Hebrew, so you've got to follow along. Anyway, if anybody has any good, uh, you know, pasuks uh, or, uh, you know, important uh, bits of uh, the Talmudic commentary, please, uh, please send them along for my, for my daughter. Yeah, that's, you, that, that is a uh, blanket invitation to the alt-right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, you know that the parsha that we uh, we didn't have her read is the one called Cuck, uh, which just uh, <laughs> later in the year. Anyway, well, so, I remember, remember that episode of the Brady Bunch where they said parsha, parsha, parsha. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and I haven't even gone into the Haftarah. So, thank you all very much. We will uh, reconnoiter uh, in a couple of weeks, and maybe. There will actually be news to react to, as opposed to you, just you should people. Dying. You should go for the whole Torah. Anyway, go I'm for done. all of it. Yeah, going back. Thank you much. But, um, tip um, your waitresses. <laughs> <laughs> tip your waitresses. And uh, I'm John Podhoritz for Jonah Goldberg and Rob Long. Uh, I got nothing else to say. I got nothing. I got plenty, but I'm lol. Nothing matters. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> Bye, guys. See ya. Glance and every little movement you show Love is all